0: This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles. A ten-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never came in a more seductive package. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap worthless strumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with
1: you. A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire.
0: She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive. Hello. I'm your host, Arlie Proctor, here with my colleagues Hazel Matthews and Skylar DeWolf. In our last episode, Ming Devlin's mother named her as a communist in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, she was then subpoenaed for her own memorable HUAC appearance.
1: Dublin, we're the waiting persons engaged in this names. conspiracy, whose names I'll reveal in a moment, are engaged in a nefarious conspiracy of truly heinous nature to undermine the most fundamental precepts on which this nation was founded. And they're willing to employ rats, stool pigeons, squealers, fingermen, and psychopathic liars to achieve their despicable ends. Names, Miss Devlin. like to Devlin. catch a glimpse of these rows? You need to look in a mirror, because I'm talking about you guys, Mr. Chairman. You, McCarthy, Nixon, and every other fascist crank on the public payroll.
0: No witness can come here and insult the committee.
1: Luckily, a group of right-thinking patriots headed That's by That's enough you. of this
0: flippancy. Is this going to witness stop her her from excused. using the Bill
1: of Rights as toilet paper.
0: Please remove the witness from this room. It's obvious she's not cooperative. But I've
1: got the information you want.
0: And so, she's blacklisted. Then, she loses a love of her life, Dixon Cook Jr., to suicide and her newborn daughter to abduction by Minx's own adoptive mother, Maggie Kingsbury. Then she receives a gift from a mysterious stranger. The stranger is the father she'd never known. She turns the gift into the cash she needs to flee the country. So where is she going? And what will happen when she gets there? Minx Devlin has lost everything. Her career, her friends and colleagues, and finally her country. Every single assumption she's made about her life has been swept away. Now she's in her 1949 Studebaker commander driving deep into Mexico. Hazel has her journal.
1: I am driving on unpaved, potholed roads as I sip from an open tequila bottle. I curse Maggie. I curse Hollywood. I curse fate. And I curse God. I am a caterwauling fury, an undoable knot of fear, rage, and regret. What now? How long can I live on what I've got? What happens when it's gone?
0: She sleeps in her car that first night. She makes it to on the second night and falls asleep on the beach.
1: I dream I'm floating out over the ocean. For one glorious moment, I'm free of my worldly woes, and then I shatter into a billion micro-shards which evaporate into night air. It's as if I'm nothing but a phantasm, a specter in a mirror, when a mirror shatters, I cease to be. I'm nothing. I'm a nobody, nowhere, an unburied corpse. I cry with no echo.
0: She drives deeper to Mexico and eventually arrives in Mexico City where she looks up the woman she met at Dixon Cook's funeral, his ex-wife, Raquel Rocky Del Fuego. And it just so happens that Ms. Del Fuego has a guest. Surrealist film legend Luis Buñuel. Skyler?
2: Ugh, well, in her journal, she calls Buñuel the great magical realist director of films and slitter of eyeballs. And by that, I mean she's referring, of course, to the film Buñuel made with Salvador Dali called The Andalusian Dog, which shocked audiences with an image of a man slitting an eyeball with a razor blade. Well, sort of. Uh, Buñuel made films that mixed Comedy, melodrama, surrealism, and romance, along with a ferocious strain of anti-Catholicism. By 1951, he was forced to work in that most debased of movie genres, the Mexican lucha libre masked wrestling movie. He loves Minx Devlin's movies, especially the Spider-Gal films. I mean, who doesn't? And they were huge in Mexico.
1: Right, and Louise Benwell asks her to come to his apartment the next day to discuss her appearing in his next film. She's skeptical. I mean, how can she star in his movie if she doesn't speak Spanish? Um, so before they talk about the movie, Bunuel insists on making Minx a martini. Not just any martini. The martini. The one and only perfect martini from the journal, she says. I ask him the secret of the perfect martini. He tells me it's in what he calls the paradox of vermouth. There." must be Vermouth or it wouldn't be a, a Martini. And yet the Vermouth mustn't invade the gene, it must whisper in its ear, so it's there, and yet it's not. In this way, well I suppose it resembles the Immaculate Conception. How so, I ask? Saint Thomas Aquinas described the Dosley, the Divine Spirit, found physical purchase not by some gross grunting act of man, but rather by the generative powers of the Holy Ghost piercing the virgin diamond like a ray of sunshine through a window, leaving it unbroken. And you can do that with gin and vermouth. He smiles. Wash me.
2: This process was like a movie in itself. It took two days. On day one, Bunuel freezes everything, including the gin, the shaker, and the glasses. On day two, he pours the vermouth over ice cubes and drains the rest. So the only vermouth left is what coated the cubes. Then he adds the gin, shakes, and pours. And the result?
1: Manic, delirious, delicious euphoria. I am every melody written by Mozart every word scrawled by Baudelaire, and every bud on every flower in the garden and the universe. I am the love that I have been looking for my whole life. <laughs> it's not just in me, it is me. I am shrieking with laughter at the hysterical cosmic jest God has played upon me. It seems that I've lost everything I didn't need so that nothing would stop me from enjoying this one perfect moment of ridiculous bliss. I can only guess that Boonwell Martini has inspired exhilarated lunacy and others, even more deranged than a certain yours truly, as we both enjoy a second and then a third helping. But eventually this delightful mania disintegrates into despair. I beg him for another dose of this celestial medication, but he wisely demurs. Instead, to my amazement, he tells me the story of his next picture and offers me a role, and poof! Just like that, I'm back in the movie business. Life is full of surprises.
0: The working title for this film is Santo vs. the Wrestling Girls of the Aztec Pyramid. Skylar, who was Santo?
2: Who was Santo? Wow. Well, Santo was the most famous lucha libre masked wrestler in all of Mexico. He starred in more than 50 ultra low budget, insanely popular horror, fantasy, action, adventure movies from Hmm. the 1950s through the mid 1970s. Every time I think I've seen them all, somebody sends me another (laughs) one. Uh, uh, The best of them include some of my favorites are Santo versus the Diabolical Brain, Santo versus the King of Crime. And, of course, Santo versus the Martian invasion. Well, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> well, Bunuel's career was in desperate straits, and that's why he agreed to work in this debased genre on a six-day schedule. And they could shoot the whole thing for free if they traveled to Cuba because the producer had a sweetheart deal with the Cuban president. <laughs>
0: So Minx Devlin, Santo, and Luis Buñuel arrive in Cuba via Pan Am Clipper on March 10, 1952. The day that Senor Fulgencio Batista stages a coup overthrows President Prio and names himself the supreme ruler of all Cuba. Minx and her friends are hauled up in front of Batista. He tells the group that they can make their movie under one condition, recorded by Minx in her journal.
1: Yes, and the shoot could go on if she agreed to let Sr. Batista become her, and this word is underlined three times in her journal, personal benefactor.
0: Ah, yes. So, in other words, his mistress.
1: Right. Uh, so, all this happens at 10 in the morning, and at 1 o'clock that afternoon, Batista escorts Ms. Devlin to the final game of the Cuban World Series. So, while she's sitting there, in the president's box, she opens her program, and a note falls out note says, your life is in danger. M-A-R-T-I-7485, ask for Fidel. Here's Minx in her journal. Your life is in danger. Oh, I love it, it's just so dramatic. It's like something made Marion would tell Robin Hood. Um, get back to the journal. After the ball game, Batista stashes me in the Hotel Capri and bugs my phone. I switch rooms with Santo. Fidel shows up, disguised as a room service waiter, and we make a deal. He'll keep me safe, and I'll spy on Batista for him. He has a fatal charm, and instead of shaking hands on it, we go to bed. Suddenly, I'm Ingrid Bergman in in Casablanca, cavorting with a charismatic, reckless 26-year-old Zapata wannabe, and I'm just waiting for the chance to say, Fidel, my love... Don't go to the underground meeting tonight. It's too dangerous.
0: So, Meek's Devlin has an affair with Fidel Castro.
1: She does. And her blink on her new lover is remarkable. I quickly discover that Fidel can't tell Karl Marx from Groucho. He's a fidelista. What makes him so charismatic is his passion and daring. Traits that will congeal into arrogance and megalomania over time. He says, I am Cuba. I am the destiny of my people. I will deliver them from tyranny. And you, my green-eyed dream, you will be the adored one. I will build a new Cuban motion picture industry around you. Uh Uh-huh, right. He's using me. I'm using him. It's a swell business deal with some dynamite sex thrown in.
0: And as all this is going on, Minx is making her Mexican wrestling movie. Now, how the heck does Bunuel get his money's worth if Minx can't speak Spanish? How? Because Bunuel is a genius. He casts
2: Minx as La Llorana, an ethereal spirit goddess who is looking for her lost children. She communicates with Santo via mental telepathy, of course, (laughs) and it turns out that her children have been captured by the Aztec mummy, who has turned them into man-hungry
0: vampires. Oh, not that plot. Yeah, that one again, of course.
2: So the Aztec mummy is a supernatural, back-from-the-dead, wrestling zombie wonder controlled by a crazed, defrocked Catholic priest called Padre Pius. Santo defeats the Aztec mummy in the barbed-wire cage of death, and he presents the young vampires to La Llorona, who returns them to the innocence of childhood. All in 65 minutes. Wow. Well, did I say Buñuel was a genius? He manages to turn a low-budget Mexican masked wrestler movie into a magical realist fable that's steeped in Latin American folklore that's also a surrealist dagger in the heart of the Catholic Church. Padre Pius is a drooling, death-worshipping Hitler clone.
0: Now, Senor Batista insists on escorting Minx to the film's premiere in Havana, and he invites his friend from the Vatican, Cardinal Rodolfo Zamora. When Buñuel sees Cardinal Zamora... He leans over and says to Minx, I'm afraid, dearest one, that our lives will soon be in danger. When the gunplay starts, kick off your heels, find the nearest exit, and run for your life. Don't look back till you're in Mexico City. I'll meet you there.
1: Here's Minx's journal entry from that night. As soon as Padre Pius comes on screen acting like a Nazi child molester, the hooting starts. I bolt for the left front exit. Cardinal Zamora rises from his seat and screams, Seize her! The scene is blasphemy! The penalty is death! Luckily, Santo is right behind me. He blocks the door with his body till I hit the street. Some men in a beat-up pre-war Chevy sedan are waving at me. I dive into the front seat. We fishtail away as rocks and bottles pelt the back windows. Fidel's brother Raoul is at the wheel. I think I'm safe for about 30 seconds. Then I notice the two gun-toting soldiers in the back seat. Where are we going? Raoul hates me. I'm just another of Fidel's lusty distractions from the revolution. I feel the ice-cold metal oval of a rifle bore tickle the nape of my neck. Raoul says, the police station. You will be arrested and imprisoned. We will tell the world that Batista has been betrayed, cuckolded and swindled. Fidel will wage war for your freedom, but alas, he will fail. Then you will be martyred and sainted like the blessed virgin. He and his men roar with laughter. I have one great advantage over my captors. I've seen more movies than they have. And I remember a scene from DOA. Eddie O'Brien is about to be murdered by Neville Brand, a psychopathic gunzo. O'Brien tromps on the gas pedal to send the car out of control so he can make his getaway. As we round a corner, I jab my bare foot on the accelerator. The car lurches over the curb, careens across the plaza, and rams into a statue of José Martí. Raoul's head kisses the windshield. I have exactly two seconds to get out of there before they recover and or the police see me. A city bus is just rolling away from the opposite curve. No time to jump aboard. I grab the rear spare tire and hold on for dear life until we've gone about five blocks. I leap off and duck into the filthy, rat-infested alley behind the San Souci nightclub. From there, I wander into the shadows towards old Havana. I make my way to the Flordita bar. I'm looking for a man I haven't seen since I was 11 years old. I lean on the burnished mahogany bar and say, I'll have whatever Papa's drinking. And there he is, Ernest Hemingway. And he's drinking Papa Dobles. After hugs and kisses, I tell him what's just happened. He says, God damn, girl! You've managed to piss off every big shot, Cubano, and the pearl of the Antilles. Come on, let's go out the back way.
0: He drives Minx to the Havana Harbor, where they board his fishing boat, the Pilar. They arrive in Key West at daybreak. He charters a boat so she can get to Miami, gives her money to take a bus back to Mexico City to meet Buñuel and finish the movie. Before they part, he gives her a pep talk that she recorded in her journal. I'll be Minx. And this is something I've waited my entire life to say <laughs> I'll be Hemingway.
1: I've read all the I Remember Hemingway books. Most of them paint him as a kind of drunken blowhard with a boxing glove on one hand and a dueling pistol in the other. The Hemingway I see in this moment is the real Hemingway. Wise, caring, kind in a fierce, unsentimental way.
0: Listen to me, kiddo. You've taken some blows and now you gotta forget all that self-pity junk. You're in a tougher spot than you know. You're a goddamn artist. That means you're a cultural crap detector. Your job is to tell the truth, even the truth that nobody wants to hear. In fact, especially the truth that nobody wants to hear. Me, I use words. If they try and stop me, I can write words under a different name. You tell the truth with your body and your face and your eyes. The sons of bitches that run the world have taken that away from you. So you've got to find a new way. Find it, Clara forget about happiness and money and all that other meaningless shit. you got to walk through the fire to find your way back to yourself. We'll be right back with more of the Atomic Bombshell. But first, are you suffering from pangs of guilt about listening to a podcast that obviously took thousands of man-hours to produce? Are you saying, dang... If only there was some way to show my appreciation for this dazzling tomfoolery with, oh, I don't know, money or something. Well, now there is. Merely navigate over to richlyspun.com and donate a tiny, paltry, piddling amount of money to support our efforts. You'll feel better, and so will we. Now, back to the Atomic Bombshell. Now our story gets a little, well, uh, mysterious. Ming Stavlin gets to Miami, where she boards a Greyhound bus to Mexico City.
1: My bus travels north through Jacksonville, then west along the Gulf of Mexico through Mobile, Alabama, and into Louisiana. And as we drive along, I can feel myself starting to implode. Dixon Cook called Madness the Jackal, and I know just what he means. I've held this rabid, relentless beast at bay for several years by hurling myself into one frenzied, all-consuming botheration after another. The craziness in Hawaii, having and then losing my daughter, being thrown into the vortex of the blacklist after Maggie's betrayal, and now finally Cuba? Castro and a narrow escape from annihilation? Yet another crazy failed fling Another catastrophic movie experience with another fatally flawed, self-destructive genius that ends in chaos and despair. And so here I am, scrunched down in a window seat of a Greyhound bus that stinks of diesel fumes, cigarette butts, and the drugstore perfume. I begin to go backwards into my life. Minx Devlin. Who is she? Actress, but Why? I've done nothing but act since I was three years old, and I've never really thought about it. Then I realize what I've lost. Acting let me wallow in the big, nasty emotions that make people crazy. Love, hate, fear, desire, envy, anger, you name it. My fans loved me the best when I was the meanest, lustiest bitch on the planet in in films like The Atomic Bombshell and Hell is a Female. And I loved it, too, because I was getting rich, purging those emotions. So here I am now, with all those same emotions churning inside of me, and I've got no place to put them. Instead, what I've got is this little voice in my head, the one I've been running from since I was two years old, that says, there is something wrong with you. Something horribly, terminally wrong. Oh, I've tried to drown that voice in a martini glass and shut it down with the delirious moans of lovemaking, but I've failed, and now I hear it loud and clear. So I guess it's time to turn and face it. Face my greatest fears. Walk through the fire. And then what? Death? Rebirth? If so, as what? As the bus pulls out of the station in Houston, Texas, I fall asleep. I sleep all the way to the end of the route, Laredo on the U.S.-Mexico border. I wake up with the mother of all hangover headaches, only I haven't had a drink in two days. It feels like the furies have blossomed in my skull cavity and are trying to bust out using ice picks. Somehow, I managed to struggle onto the Mexican bus and mumble the words, Mexico City, please. I plot myself next to a young Mexican girl holding a screeching baby. Despite the headache, a stiff neck, and an unquenchable thirst and a feverish forehead, I still managed to fall down a deep, profound, bottomless well of unconsciousness. this big gap in our story.
0: Right, right, a, a two and a half year gap.
2: Uh, don't remind me. I, I have tried for years to fill that gap. Um, I've managed i managed to acquire 11 of Ms. Devlin's journals. I have, let's see, three through seven and nine through 14. Um,
0: these two years would be in journal number eight. So now, luckily, we have with us the two greatest experts on uh, Minx Devlin's life. <laughs> Thank uh, you. What, what do you think happened to her?
2: I really don't know. I, I know she never made it back to Mexico City. I mean, the Santo film was abandoned and Bunuel went back to writing pop boilers and making martinis.
1: Right, and we know from her touring days, like Jailbait Baby with Herb Zisman, that Minx was resourceful. So, I've always wondered, what happened if she changed her name? Right? Maybe she moved to Acapulco. She got a job serving cocktails at a resort hotel. Or... Yeah,
2: maybe. Or maybe she holed up someplace. Maybe she wrote a novel or I a mean, memoir. I mean,
0: she was a really good writer. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, what material.
1: And painting. What if she took up painting? She loved painting. She worshipped Frida Kahlo, uh, Diego Rivera. Yeah. She loved Monet, Renoir. I
0: know. That's, that's a possibility. Uh, that's, of course, if she stayed in Mexico. I mean, she might have... I don't know. I'm always thinking maybe she booked passage on a tramp steamer and
2: toured the world. Ugh, maybe. I mean, the one reason to think she stayed in Mexico is, it, well, it's something I found right at the beginning of, what was it? Scrapbook number nine. It's an article from, let me look this up, June, June 1956 issue of Argosy magazine. It's called Rescued from the Satan Worshippers by, quote, professional bounty hunter Kyle Pafko as told to Fletcher Colt Moffat. Wow. Boy. They had names then,
1: <laughs> oh,
2: and this this article. It's a lurid first person account of two bounty hunters who are hired by a crazed millionaire who is clearly Howard Hughes to find his lost love, who is a runaway movie star that is nobody other than Minx Devlin. The men spend over a year bumbling around until they hear about a beat poet who almost certainly is. Jack Kerouac, who else, who was bragging about a wild, erotic tryst with a certain movie star in a tiny village in the center of Mexico. Hmm. So the bounty hunters find the village, and wouldn't you know it, the movie star is about to be sacrificed in some kind of satanic ritual by a wicked priestess and her coven. So the guys burst in, they grab her just before the dagger pierces her heart, and they make their escape. They fly her back to L.A. in a Piper Apache, and strangely enough, the movie star doesn't thank them as they deliver her to the crazed millionaire. So, I mean, good story, but it doesn't mention Minx Devlin by name. Why is it in her scrapbook? So all we know is that her journals pick the story up right with a Piper Apache landing at the Lockheed Air Terminal in Burbank.
0: So not, nothing else about the missing two years?
2: Not a sausage.
1: Yeah, the next thing that happens is she's driven to the Beverly Hills Hotel where she's ushered into a bungalow with champagne on ice, a bottle of cognac, fresh flowers, and a carton of her favorite cigarettes. And that is when she discovers that Howard Hughes has found her.
0: Or uh, kidnapped her.
1: Exactly, or kidnapped. She sleeps in her clothes knowing that Howard will summon her at 3 a.m. and sure enough, Hughes' assistant knocks on her door at 3 a.m. and they drive her to a screening room of a Poverty Row studio on Santa Monica Boulevard. And uh, well, let's actually pick it up from her journal. I'm ushered into a decrepit screening room about the size of a den. Howard is hunkered down on a white leather recliner. He's watching Hell is a Female. One of mine, but not one of his. Hello, Clara, he says without taking his eyes off the screen. I watch myself pour hot lead into Broderick Crawford. Who's that girl? Someone I knew two lifetimes ago. She's not bad. Howard turns and stares at me. He's haggard, haunted, one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. Greasy, gray hair, sallow skin. But it's the eyes, mostly. Terrified, glassy, a little unfocused. Marry me, Clara. I don't know what I expected. Hello, maybe? Where have you been for the last two years? Did you sleep in those clothes? But a marriage proposal? He says, well, yes or no. When I mention my sordid past, he says he can fix all that he really means it. This is a serious proposal. I tell him I have to think about it. He says, no, it has to be now. When I ask why, he tells me to trust him. He says, why did I go to such lengths to bring you back here? You're the only one who never wanted a damn thing from me. The only one I can trust. I open my mouth to object when he finally turns to me. I can eliminate every trouble you have with a single wave of my hand. From now until the day you die, your every need, care, desire, and whim will be attended to. And all I need from you is one simple word. Yes, but I need it now. I'm back on my heels, what to do? I know it's a foolish and hopeless and a catastrophic mistake, but I hear myself say, okay, Howard, Yes. He says, now? Today? I say, yes. Whatever you'd like. He smiles and tells me to go back to the hotel and wait for his instructions.
0: Meeks is driven back to her hotel and falls asleep. She's awakened by room service at 9 a.m., only she didn't order room service. A bellboy rolls in a cart with a Denver omelet. Under the plate is a manila envelope. It has smudgy photostats of Howard's medical records. It seems that Mr. Hughes is suffering from dementia paralytica, irreversible brain damage caused by untreated syphilis contracted in his 20s and greatly accelerated by the cranial trauma of several near-fatal airplane crashes. Mm. Under symptoms, it says, Irritability, memory loss, paranoid delusions, defective judgment, subject is losing his mind and knows it. There's a second photostat underneath the first one. This is a handwritten memo from Hughes to his attorney, Greg Boutzer.
2: Absolutely, and I am happy to say that I have that memo right here. Hmm. It says, and I quote, GB, agree with your conclusions, re California law on metal incapacitation. Appears only way to foil plot against me is to get hitched and quickly. Must repeat, must be someone entirely trustworthy. By the way, he underlines entirely trustworthy twice. <laughs> then it goes on to say, This means Clara. Conditions seem ideal. Her career is in ruins, she's got no friends she can trust, and she's desperate for money. Disagree on significance of HUAC, communist matter. I want her for a wife. She'll be off the screen. And her actions prove that she's the best candidate. She is least likely to fold, most likely to keep her mouth shut no matter what. Just what we're looking for. Comments, yours, HH.
0: Now, California law says you can't send someone to the loony bin unless the spouse signs the commitment papers. Howard needs to get married. So have an insurance policy against being committed. It seems that someone inside his own organization at the highest echelon is trying to steal Howard's empire by having him thrown in the nuthouse. And whoever that is smuggled this document to Minx. Okay, from her journal.
1: The other side doesn't know me too well. This ham-handed play just makes me more determined to marry the bastard. I'm bone tired of being broke, scared, and alone. I'm tired of running. I just want the peace that comes with sharing a bed with a billion dollars. And let's face it, the bastard can't be that long for the world. When he's gone, I can buy one of the lesser Hawaiian islands and enjoy myself. We meet Howard at the airport. There, on the runway, is one of his TWA constellations, an airplane designed to carry 120 passengers. The six of us get on board. We're about as inconspicuous as a dung beetle on a flapjack. We land on a makeshift airfield designed to handle military traffic just outside Rhyolite, Nevada, next to the Yucca Flats nuclear testing range. Nobody has to explain the drill. Check in, freshen up, a quickie ceremony, fake names, and as little paper as possible. I stash the hotel cognac in my suitcase. I take a healthy gulp, then another, then one more. I figure I'd better be a little tipsy to endure this fiasco. The liquor chloroforms whatever qualms I have about making a deal with the devil. At least it's the devil I know. The wedding party is in the lobby. When Howard sees me, he hands the phone to one of his attorneys and nods for another to join him. That attorney pulls out a sheaf of legal papers and starts telling me the terms of the marriage agreement. And I feel like I'm standing on quicksand that's starting to give way. According to this agreement that I've never seen and have no time to read, I will have a permanent chaperone with me at all times. I will be forbidden from acting in motion pictures. I will be a full-time, stay-by-his-side wife. When I am in his presence, I will have no physical contact with Mr. Hughes unless such contact is requested, and then only those acts specified by Mr. Hughes. I will not speak to Mr. Hughes unless he asks me to, and at all other times, I will communicate via yellow legal pads. Next comes Howard's well-known phobia about germs. I will be forbidden from touching the television set, also the telephone, the refrigerator door handle, doorknobs in general, and any implement used to cook food, open cans, or otherwise prepare foodstuffs. The lawyer finally hands me this document, which is just slightly larger than a New York phone book, and Howie tells me to sign it. I'm angry. I shake my head. I tell him, I'll sign a wedding certificate. That's it. Howard says, George, give her the stuff a different attorney, hands me a paper bag. A pearl necklace, rubies, diamond rings. I say no thank you and try to hand the jewels back to him. He stands there, still as a statue, glowering. Sign it, Clara. I shake my head and stuff the jewels into the baggy pocket of the attorney. Another turning point. How might my life have been different if I just signed the damn papers and gotten on with it? But I could never do anything the easy way. Something tells me that if I fold now and let him change the deal on me, I'll never stop giving in. My cognac high peaks, and I can feel the prickly rawness of sobriety tingle up my spine. The anesthetic is wearing off, and the patient is turning cranky. Howard's getting desperate. He's shouting now. Clara, I need you to sign this document right now. Can't you understand how important this is? I say, Howard, I know exactly how important this is. I also know that you want to marry me precisely because I won't let anybody push me around, including you. Sign it, he barks. No, now, no. And then he raises his right arm and slaps me. He slaps me so hard that my back teeth crush my tongue and I crash to the dirty linoleum floor. The drone of chatter in the room evaporates. Everyone goggles at the two of us. So here it is again, the pivotal moment. All I have to do to get the one thing I want so desperately Is to step over the one line I can never ever cross. The pathetic crazy bastard across from me can get me off the blacklist, get me my daughter, set me up on Easy Street. I've gone through hell to get here. I've even gotten half drunk so I can handle the insanity of it. But Howard has done the one thing that makes this impossible. Oh, damn. Damn, 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 damn. I don't know how long I lay there, crumpled on the floor. I just stare at him, feeling my cheek burn and tasting the acrid coppery tang of blood in my mouth. A minute? An hour? He's clearly mortified by what he's done, but he's Howard Hughes, who has never apologized to anyone for anything. Finally, I stand and face him. I hold his ravaged, crash-scarred face between my hands, and I kiss him long enough to leave bloodstains on his lips. Then I trudge back upstairs. I stagger into that musty, airless room and sprawl on the soiled bedspread, sobbing. My head is splitting. I cry out the pain. I feel like a rat in a maze with an infinite number of hallways and no cheese. I ponder my fate as I stare at the ceiling, a a water stain that's a thermal map of South America. Then finally, I hear the Jeep cough to life and sputter off. They're gone, all of them. I never want to see Howard Hughes or any of his flunkies again. Then I plunge into a murky, sweat-drenched, nightmare-riven sleep. (laughs)
0: The Atomic Bombshell, The mink Devlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by Arlie Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder and Stephen Smith. Please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find books and movies that illuminate Havana, Cuba under Batista in the 1950s and the romantic misadventures of Howard Hughes. And you can pre-order the book that inspired this podcast, Minx Devlin's epic autobiography that goes even deeper into the fascinating life of this celluloid love goddess. In our next episode... Minx makes her wildest, most unexpected comeback yet as Queen of the Passion Pits and begins another wild affair with a certain Massachusetts senator who just might be the next president of the United States. That's The Atomic Bombshell, episode number six Hellbent for Kicks.